Hello, I'm Angus Scott. Welcome to our new podcast, The Debrief. Every week, we'll be getting under the skin of the major sports stories that are dominating your conversations. With regular guests, that will include players, managers, journalists, fans, and listeners. We will bring you the exclusive inside track on some of the biggest stories affecting the game. And that includes transfer news too, because we're delighted to say that the transfer guru, Fabrizio Romano, will be dropping in every week to give us his spin on the market, and you'll be able to access the debrief via Fabrizio's Substack, if you haven't already done so. And stay with us, because he has the very latest on all the comings and goings surrounding the Saudi Pro League, news on Bobby Firmino to come. Another permanent fixture with me will be Ben Jacobs, himself considered one of the most knowledgeable transfer experts on the planet. Hi, Ben. Great to be here. Ironic that we would launch a podcast with me on it and it would have the word brief in it. But I'm certainly <laughs> looking forward to delving into a number of topics, including Saudi Arabia this afternoon. You you will be and you and Fab together. It's a bit like having Messi and Ronaldo in the same team. So we, <laughs> we, we look forward to that. If I take the coach role, I don't know who I am yet, but we'll find a way in the future. And There's an element of the sort of Maurizio Pochettino about you. Well, he seems to be selling all his players at the moment. Is that I, 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 I need you on side, Ben? Maybe, maybe you're my, you're my captain. That that's what it is. And Fab is my star striker. So um, that's that's my spine of the team, and we'll build from there. Anyway, <laughs> to, today we're discussing the sudden and somewhat unexpected growth of the Saudi Pro League after Ronaldo, Neves, Koulibaly, Kanté, Mendy. Who's next? And how many will the Saudis plunder from Europe to give their league the star-studded dusting they feel they might need? A very good question, you may ask. So I'm pleased to say alongside Ben and me, we have James Benj, the CBS football correspondent, who's been across most of these transfers from his London base. James, welcome to you too. It's great to have you along on the debrief. Yeah, thanks for having me along. I'd like to think maybe I'm a bit of a loan signing to to, to pull out the numbers. <laughs> you know, hopefully more of a, a Dugarry than a Kim Kellstrom. Uh, see what I can offer. Though. I'm sure there is success in the future. We'll see. Don't feel that you'll be judged over the next 45 <laughs> minutes. This is not a trial. You're not a trialist. <laughs> right, Ben, let's get on with the, with the questions. Um, let's start with you. What are Saudi up to? It's a good question. It's a difficult question to answer. But what we're seeing in this transfer window and beyond is the beginning of a long-term strategy. And Saudi Arabia, led by PIF, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, and the owners of Newcastle United are out in the market, representing four major clubs, two in Riyadh and two in Jeddah. Al-Itihad are the champions at the moment of the Saudi Pro League, Al-Ali, Al Nasser and Al Hilal, but it will go beyond that. And of course, the Saudi clubs can still make their own signings, but there's a series of big names, elite names, if you like. And there was an original list of 20, but there are other targets taking that number, I would say, to 70. And if at the end of this window, they get 30 or 40 spread across the clubs, they will deem that to be relatively successful. Cristiano Ronaldo's at Al Nasser, Karim Benzema's at Al Itihad. And this is about growing the league. It's about tying sport into the so-called Vision 2030. It may be about sports washing as well. We obviously have to put scrutiny on that point. It's certainly about promoting tourism and also a healthy lifestyle within Saudi Arabia. 
And it's also about building the league to raise the local standard of football because Saudi Arabia are hoping to build on their World Cup in Qatar, but also ultimately host the World Cup in 2030 as well. And they're widely expected to bid for that tournament. So this may feel like it's come out of nowhere, but it's the first step to quite a patient long-term strategy. But Ben, that's a massive first step. Uh, And James, you can answer this too. Look, Ben's talking about 30 or 40 players. That's, I mean, that's a huge number of players just in the first go. And what's fascinating about it is in in London and in Europe in particular, you've almost seen these representatives from Pith and they are eventually joined by club representatives, just just park themselves in in London in top hotels and open the checkbook and and invite all comers who are interested. And and we will talk from there and we will nail it down and we will see who fancies the money. And the the money we are talking about here, especially for the biggest, biggest names is it's staggering. Uh, Angolo Kante, uh, I believe the salary is a, a, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but a hundred million euros a year net. So this is all after what little tax there is to pay in Saudi Arabia. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo, that package is is about 250 million euros a year in total. Um, I have to say, as, as we kind of get down from the, the top level, those those salaries are a little more in line with Europe than I thought they might initially be. Um, maybe more in the 10 to 15 million euro range. That is a big salary at a top European club. But it's not necessarily, uh, you know, the sort of eye-watering sums that a, a, a Chelsea, a Manchester City could not match at all. But I think at the moment, in particular, what they are, what they're doing is, is sort of seeing who is who is available, who clubs are looking to move on from, and they're not, as far as I can tell, they're not being that picky. A great example here is Al Nasser, who at once seemed to be chasing about three or four midfielders to all play in the exact same position. Players like Brozovic, Partey. It is almost as if you know the the checkbook comes first and then they'll work out all the practicalities yet yeah, it's really interesting talking to to people who aren't part of the pith four or or indeed to people who are and there's this thing of those four teams there's a desire to turn these into sort of hyper clubs and to surround cristiano ronaldo with hakim ziek who we, who we know is going to get al hilal to get them neymar to go with ruben neves and of course al liti had already have benzema and kante um, and then you have the other 16 teams, I think it is, in the league, who are basically being told, wait your turn. Um, It's almost like a deliberate attempt to manufacture something like the Premier League's big six at the start of the league. You know, not this isn't happening by accident. It is happening on purpose by Pith, which is effectively an arm of the Saudi state. It is so strange. Um, Exhilarating as a reporter, I have to say as well, but it's very strange to see someone basically trying to do Premier League Mark II um, on, you know, 150 miles an hour. It's been a very strange summer so far. As you've both outlined, some of those names, for the for those of you not familiar, it is just four big clubs, all owned by P, uh, PIF. Al Nasser, Al Hilal, Al Itihad and Al Ahli. And you'll be hearing a lot more of those names in the weeks to come. You, you've probably never even heard of anybody. You might have heard of, uh, of Al Ahli, who, who have been a successful club in um, AFC Champions League. But So Al Nasser was where Cristiano Ronaldo went and Hakim Ziyech is, is lined up to go there as well. Ruben Neves, we've talked about from Wolves. He's only 26 and he's ended up at Al-Hilal with Kaladu Koulibaly. Then Al-Atihad, as, as James just said, has Karim Benzema and Angola Kante, who you can say coming to the end of their careers, uh, Benzema 35. And then Al-Akhli, 
no one signed as yet, though Mendy, I think more or less either today or tomorrow, we're going to ask um, Fabrizio about that, whether that deal is done. And Bobby Firmino um, nearly signed on the dotted line. Ben, I suppose the question is then, why is this all happening now? What's it all about? You've, you've said about the vision for Saudi 2030, but but why now? What's going on? Well, I think we're just seeing Saudi Arabia move on sports. So off the back of the COVID-19 pandemic, and some would say in a football context, off the back of the failed Super League as well, there's two windows of opportunity. One is down to the fact that we haven't seen a breakaway, but there's still the opportunity to lure over names. And football's always been about teams and brands, but Saudi Arabia are very much looking at these players as individuals that young audiences might follow. And I think that's been proven in the case of transfers so far, because when Benzema signed for Al-Itihad, there was suddenly millions of followers added to their social platforms. And it was exactly the same and, in fact, more emphatic with Cristiano Ronaldo to Al Nasser. So the Saudi Arabian strategy is banking on players having star power and bringing a global audience with them, which you can obviously cash in on, and that's important, but also used for other purposes as well. And in every single one of these deals, the wage might appear high, but we should make it clear that the clubs are not footing the full bill. So you have a base wage, you have bonuses, you have other incentives, you have money for your image rights, you have other earning opportunities that might tie players towards the tourism industry. And even Lionel Messi, who didn't end up joining is still affiliated to the Saudi Tourism Authority. So the answer to why now is because the World Cup for Saudi Arabia, if they bid and are successful, will be in 2030, and they want to start building at all levels. So the aims are to use football to get that global audience, but also not only to bring players to Saudi Arabia, to also bring Saudi Arabia around the world, which is why we're going to see with the Saudi Pro League next season global TV rights deals. And I think that the COVID point is significant as well. So the first thing is about the Super League failing and players ultimately wanting new challenges towards the back end of their career. And it's not like they were offered a ton of money elsewhere. And this can help set up a retirement fund for a player. It can look after their families. It can keep them playing a bit longer, let's not forget, as well. Because with respect to the Saudi Pro League, the standard is not as high as in Europe's big five leagues. But with COVID, PIF sat down and said, we need to find opportunism in the market. And also, we need to not be reliant on the oil and gas industry. So this ticks both boxes because there's the opportunism there because a lot of the clubs have the desire to bring in income and some of them are struggling due to financial fair play and are very much willing to sell their stars and get them off the wage bill. Chelsea is one example of that. And then sport being that ability to make a splash effectively without having to worry about business and money coming from the oil and gas sector. So this is basically part of a 2030 vision. It might seem like it's sudden and surprising, but it's very clear within the vision that sport was always going to play a massive part between now and 2030. I think we should add in the Ronaldo factor as well, because Saudi Arabia have been looking for players to take their money for a long time now. And, you know, a year before Cristiano Ronaldo rocks up at Al Nasser. Al Nasser are making an offer to Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Um, Arsenal are pretty keen to do a deal, but they can't convince Aubameyang to come out to the Saudi Pro League. I think there's a sense that the league's just, it's not a place to play. The minute Ronaldo rocks up at Al Nasser, and it kind of has to be said that was pretty much his only option, suddenly you kind of hear from agents and you talk as you hear these whispers 
from Saudi, from Saudi clubs about who they want to sign. And suddenly it's not considered a mad, mad idea to go there anymore. People look at it and go, if it's good enough for Ronaldo, it's good enough for me. And I think Ronaldo's success uh, as a marketing, uh, you know, marketing tool for, for the league has really encouraged, I think, the, the the big clubs to go for it and Pith to go for it and see if they can build a league, especially now while they have eyeballs that Ronaldo will draw over the next two, three, however many years his, his playing career. So Ronaldo is almost the the nitrous oxide on this engine that's really propelled it forward into the summer. Yeah, he was the key to it. Well, every week we will be talking about transfers and there are clearly plenty going on on the uh, Saudi front. And one man who is across most, if not all the transfers worldwide, is Fabrizio Romano. He'll be dropping into the football debrief every single week. So be sure to join us every Monday to get the very latest from Fab and the inside track on the big transfer news. Well, this week, when he popped in a few moments ago, we talked Saudi and started by discussing the news that broke this morning that Roberto Firmino looks very likely to be the next big name heading to Saudi. Well, Fabrizio, thank you for dropping into the Football Debrief. It's going to be great to check in with you every Monday to give us your take on all the latest transfer news. Let's get straight to business then. Bobby Firmino, is it a done deal? Almost. Uh, we are just at the final stages of this story between Bobby Firmino and uh, Al Ahli. The conversation is very advanced on a three-year contract. There is also the possibility to include an option for further season in the contract of Roberto Firmino. They are just waiting for the final green light on the player side. So on Saudi side, they are very optimistic to get it done this week. This is the hope on uh, Al Ahli's side. So to announce Eduardo Mendy as new goalkeeper in the next hours and days and then to announce Roberto Firmino. Again, there is still something to clarify in terms of details of the contract and then they hope to get it done. So I would say it's very, very advanced. Look, there are plenty of other names being thrown in the mix. This is just the beginning of the sort of Saudi revolution. What about um, Ziyech to Al Nasser? Is that done? Yeah, it's almost done. It's almost done. They are checking the contrast, but uh, I would say that these three deals between Chelsea and the Saudi sides are almost completed. So we know about Kalikadu Koulibaly being official. Uh, same with uh, Eduard Mendy. And the next one is going to be Akin Ziyech. In this case, it's just about checking contracts, signing the contracts, and then uh, undergo medical tests. But it's just a matter of time. And then Akin Ziyech will be a new Al Nasser player. He will play together with Cristiano Ronaldo. They also hope to convince in the coming hours Marcelo Brozovic from Inter. There is a conversation very advanced with Inter. Inter want to sell the player because they will put that money on Davide Fratesi's solo midfielder. And on player side, there is still something to agree with Al Nasser. So the conversation is very advanced. But for Ziyech, I would say it's just a matter of hours or days. And is Cristiano Ronaldo having a say in all this? I think yes. From what I heard, of course, he's not taking care of the negotiations, but Cristiano is 100% involved in the project at Al Nasser. Uh, he's really happy with what's happening in general around Saudi football, because when he arrived there, he had his first press conference and he said in a very clear way, this league is going to be a top five league maybe in a few, few years. And so what they're doing around the league is really satisfying for Cristiano. And of course, also in terms of Al Nasser, to play with a player like Hakim Ziyech is considered perfect for the characteristic and the skills of Cristiano Ronaldo. So from what I understand, He's very happy with the general situation and in particular, of course, with the project of, of Al Nasser. Look, Saudi were hoping they get the two biggest names in football. They did get Cristiano Ronaldo. They didn't get Lionel Messi. Why did that move fall down? Honestly, that was a really complicated situation eh, in general around Leo Messi because I think Inter Miami have been kind of perfect in terms of strategy, uh, also in public with uh, Leo Messi. They always approached Messi uh, also a few years ago. They always told him one day it will happen. So take your time. They were not kind of 
pushing on the press. And I think this kind of strategy was helping also to convince Messi and his family. We know how important it was his wife, his kids, the whole family to decide all together. So he had this big possibility uh, to go to, to Saudi. The proposal was very big, was historical, almost 1 billion euros in two years. So everything was very concrete. In Saudi, they were 100% sure of Leo Messi joining them. So it was very, very advanced. But then Leo Messi decided for something different, and not just for the money or the Saudi project, but to go for something more uh, oriented on their private life, I would say. Of course, with MLS, there is a different kind of project with Inter Miami, uh, with players like Sergio Busquets, who is going to join him. So it's completely different kind of project. And so it collapsed, but it was very advanced. So in Saudi, they were really confident. The bid was there the first week of April. So it was a very serious negotiation. But then Leo Messi decided to go for MLS, also because he would be involved in many activities, also off the pitch and, of course, on the pitch with Inter Miami. So Al-Hilal, they miss out on Messi, uh, but they do get Koulibaly. They've got Neves, surprisingly. Who else is likely to join? Yeah, I think they will attack uh, some more player in uh, Europe in the coming days. For them, it's crucial now to understand who is going to be the coach. They are working a lot on this coach situation. They made an important proposal to Massimiliano Allegri, Juventus manager, 20 million euros net per year for two-year contract. This is what I heard yesterday, but Massimiliano Allegri said no. He wants to continue at Juventus, so no chance to, to accept. They are now in conversation with other managers. They approached Paolo Fonseca, who is doing an excellent job at Lille, but Lille still hope for him to stay. And then Tite, the formal coach of Brazilian national team at the World Cup, is another option they are considering internally. So the coach is the next step at Alilal because they want to make sure they're going to follow kind of technical project with a new manager who is going to decide together with them what kind of signings they need. But I think this is not over at all. They're going to work on many signings. And as you mentioned, after Koulibaly and Ruben Neves, I think they will try to do something also in the attacking positions because they want to try to find some solution there. The likes of, you talk about those attacking solutions, someone like Neymar, Bernardo Silva, the type of name that they will be going for? Honestly, I think it's going to be difficult with these players. It's true that there is strong interest from Saudi for uh, for Bernardo Silva. This is absolutely true. But what I can say is that as of today, Bernardo has not decided anything. Also, in this case, he wants to decide together with his family because he has a possibility, a very strong possibility with Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, PSG have an excellent relationship with Players Camp and they dream of Bernardo Silva. He's one of the top targets for Paris Saint-Germain director Luis Campos this summer. Uh, so he already had Bernardo Silva as a player when he was the director at Monaco. So Bernardo is one of the players that are top of the list at Paris Saint-Germain and I'm sure they will try and try again in the next weeks. And also Manchester City because Man City still want to convince Bernardo Silva maybe to stay for one more season uh, after Gundogan the season to join Barca. They still hope to find a way and keep Bernardo at least for one more year. So the situation is very open but it's not going to be easy for Saudi clubs to convince Bernardo Silva as it was complicated also to convince Ilkay Gundogan and they really tried with an important proposal. For Neymar, at the moment, I'm told that it's true that there is interest from Saudi but it's not something advanced player side. It's not an advanced conversation. I have a feeling that as of now, Neymar still wants to compete in European football. So he wants to uh, fight for a Champions League title again. And so this is the feeling of those around Neymar. Then we know that with Saudis, we have to keep an eye on the situation until the end of the window, because uh, for PSG, it's a possibility to let Neymar go. But at the moment, it's not something advanced with any club. How many uh, players do you think would Saudi be happy with before they start the season that, that they take now? 
Honestly, this is a good question. Um, I'm not sure there is a specific number. Uh, from what I heard, they have different kind of categories of players. So there are like the top stars, then important players, and then some players to complete the squad. So it's not just superstars, but also some players to help completing the squad. So this is the idea they have in, uh, in Saudi. I think there is not a specific number. They're trying to bring as many players as possible, of course, also with the strategy, because it's not just about bringing players, but also finding the right club for every single player it's also about the city many players want to live in specific city maybe to be together with some other player coming from other european clubs so i think this is going to be very busy also in the next weeks it's not something that is going to be over in a in few days i'm sure that they will attack the market also in july that the idea is to continue tempting players in europe and so this is just the beginning this is my feeling honestly speaking to sources there Fabrizio, before we before we leave you, uh, it's obviously a big week in England as well for some deals uh, away from Saudi Arabia. What about Declan Rice? Arsenal still the favourites there? I would say that both, from what I heard also today, both Arsenal and also Manchester City have an intention to bid for Declan Rice. So both clubs will bid. In the case of Arsenal, it's going to be the third official proposal. The second was turned down last week, but they will attack the situation again. They know that on player side, they made very good progress a few weeks ago, but now it's time to reach an agreement with West Ham. And so Arsenal will bid again for Declan Rice. Manchester City will do the same, but in terms of first proposal in this case, so they are prepared to bid, they want to enter the race, and they want to try for Declan Rice. So I'm sure that it's is going to be a busy week with official proposals. Let me clarify one thing. It's going to be crucial, the structure of the deal. The payment terms are really important for West Ham to accept the bid. So it's not just the value of the bid. They want something close to £100 million, but also how much is going to be paid this summer and next summer. They don't want very long payment terms. And so this is going to be a crucial factor in this negotiation for Declan Rice. And lastly, Mason Mount, is that deal off to Manchester United? Is still on? And are Bayern interested? No, at the moment it's not, it's not off. From what I heard, it's absolutely on. Then uh, Manchester United will not wait forever. So while we're speaking, it's on. Then let's see in the coming hours or days what they decide to do because the bid is still valid on the table. Uh, May United want Mason Mount, Eric Tanak want Mason Mount and they know that the player really wants to join Manchester United. But they will not accept Chelsea counter offer of £65 million. So it's about Chelsea and United now to find a solution together. From what I heard on player side, the message also over the weekend has been very clear to Chelsea. Sell me now or I will leave as free agent next summer. This is the position of Mason Mount. So it's on Chelsea now. I think there will be new contacts also today, tomorrow, to try to find a solution with Manchester United because all parties go in that direction. About Bayern Munich, I heard these rumours, but from what I'm told, Mason Mount's priority is Manchester United. And it's true that Thomas Tuchel is a big fan of Mount. He really rates Mount. He's convinced he's a fantastic midfielder, but it's too expensive. Bayern will put that money probably on a striker. And so the idea is to do something different at the moment for Bayern rather than signing Mason amount this summer. So I still see Manchester United as favourites and I'm sure there will be new contests with Chelsea to try to find a solution together. Otherwise, Manchester United will move on other targets. But the deal is absolutely on. Okay, Fabrizio, it's going to be a fascinating few weeks before this window closes. So much to talk about. We look forward to next week and thanks for your time. Thank you. It was a big pleasure and see you soon here. Thank you. Ciao. Ben, Fab, as interesting as ever. Um, you know, things are... <laughs> are speeding up, all these deals being done pretty quickly. And as you said, uh, or, or James was mentioning as well, you know, the fact that Ronaldo got over the line and was there means everyone else is suddenly gone, hmm, I might have a piece of this. 
there's definitely a player power element. And if the four big clubs in Riyadh and Jeddah each have a star name, then naturally they're going to attract their friends. And that's nothing new. You only have to look at Lionel Messi, who we'll talk about later picking into Miami. And Sergio Busquets decides to go there instead of Saudi Arabia. And he was a Saudi target. Luka Modric signed a new deal at Real Madrid for one year. He got an astronomical offer from Saudi Arabia, to my understanding. Chose not to go, but let's see what happens in 2024. It's the same for Sonnet. Spurs. He said he's not interested. Al-Itihad were one of the clubs hoping there might be a deal there, but again, for a year's time. So I think what's evident, and we heard this from Fab when we were talking about the number of players that might end up there, is that Saudi Arabia are looking to be opportunistic now, but also prepared to play the long game as well. And then just touching upon a couple of the signings, Bobby Firmino is looking really likely to Al-Ali. I think that the broad personal terms, to my understanding, are basically agreed on a three-year deal. Brozovic Inter is still one to watch. William Carvalho might join Cristiano Ronaldo at Al Nasser. That one's not done yet, but it's a good example of a friend of Ronaldo that might come and join him. And even with Hakim Ziyech, my understanding is that he really quite wanted to go and play with Cristiano Ronaldo. So this isn't only about the clubs and the money, but we shouldn't be naive. Of course, if the wages weren't there, very few of these players would be making the move. But there is another aspect, which is if you're going to take your family over to Saudi Arabia, where are you going to live? What's it going to be like? Is there anybody that you know in the dressing room? And I think that's where players that have come slightly before you are able to give that advice. Here's what it's actually like. And you and me, Angus, we've both lived in the Middle East, in Qatar, and me in the UAE. And I think we both found the same thing, that when you first move over there, there's a lot of myth about what it's actually like. So if you know somebody there, that can be the deal breaker or the significant factor that says to you, okay, maybe I should drop the preconceptions. Maybe I should listen to the people that understand the region. And if they're saying what it's actually like, and it's conducive, for me and my family, I'll make the move. And this is why I think we're going to see player power and player pitches pick up a bit of speed over time because they're actually going to be forming part of the recruitment process and be significant voices in effectively trying to attract their peers and their friends. Um, uh, James, you broke the Angola Kante story. What part of what Ben is saying had any influence on his move out there? What what was the, the deal behind? How, how did that come about? It's hard to read Kante's mind, and we know he is not just a man that is um, interested in money. As everyone will tell you, the stories of the mini, uh, the, the, the mini Cooper that's parked up at the Chelsea training ground uh, next to all the Lamborghinis and Ferraris. I, equally, I do think, you know, the, the, the money matters and the, the opportunity to raise you know raise the expectations raise the the life possibilities not just of your immediate family but your extended family i know that is a significant swing factor and look when the when the money was put in front of kante suddenly at a very similar time you heard from chelsea that the or, or the optimism sort of ebbed away from chelsea the optimism that you heard in march that he would sign i think you have to say the money makes a difference it's also worth noting you know, Kante is is Muslim, and I think a lot of the conversations that happen in Europe about Saudi Arabia talk about could players cope with the culture shock of moving out there. And I know you you guys will understand this much better than me. Mm. I think it would be fair to say that if you are a practicing Muslim, maybe that culture shock is not quite as as keenly felt. And totally. you know, if you look at some yeah. of the other players that have gone out there, 
it is it is a thing that is that, that many of them have in common it, and it would not be as i don't know if intimidating is the right word but it, it would not be the same culture shock as it would be for someone like myself to travel out to to saudi arabia and, and live there so the money the money matters an awful lot but i think also it, it's true that kante to al itihad accelerated quite quickly when benzema went there going back to what Ben was saying, if there's an opportunity here to maybe play with good friends, to to try something new. Um, one interesting part of that, I heard a lot of Kante stuff. And, and when you say I broke the, the Kante story, I did. But I had him going to Al Nasser because Al Nasser put in all the legwork, worked really hard, put together a compelling offer. Uh, and then they and the other four were, were bought by, or the other three were bought by PIF. And suddenly it was concluded that N'Golo Kante would be a, a great fit for Al Itihad, who will be playing in the um, Club World Cup in the in the winter. Uh, and that was it. You know, he was off and speak to people at Al Nasser and they're sort of saying, well, we can't do anything about it. It's, you know, that we've got the same bosses, the same owners. So it's, he's Al Itihad's player now and we we hope they'll compensate us. And Hakim Ziyech is, is not too bad as an alternative and they'll get their... <laughs> They'll get their midfielder, whether it's Brozovic, Carvalho, Partey, whoever it might be. But I have to say that's been one of the very strange bits of covering, and this was true with Messi as well, of covering these Saudi stories, that these aren't club-to-club negotiations, club-to-player negotiations. These are sovereign wealth funds-to-player negotiations most of the time. Um, and that is quite a curious. <laughs> that's not something we've that anything else in uh, football journalism has prepared you for. No, well, that's a really interesting question, though, James. Ben, you might be able to answer this. You know, uh, who are doing the deals here, uh, you know, with PIF representing all four of those big clubs? Well, there's two kinds of deal makers in this. There's PIF who are controlling the four big clubs, and then you have wider Saudi deal makers, and there's even Saudi Pro League involvement. And even though he's now outgoing, part of the consultancy team included the ex-Manchester City executive Gary Cook. So you have a strange scenario if we compare it to Premier League terms, whereby if you had a player like Erling Haaland, it would almost be like the British government and the Premier League having a conversation and saying, should we send Erling Haaland to Manchester City, Manchester United, Liverpool or just for the sake of it, Leicester City. And obviously they'd pick Leicester yeah, not be and he'd silly, go and yeah. score on, 500 goals in the championship. <laughs> but this is the reality of the situation. So James is quite right. The club comes in last. And even with Lionel Messi, everyone said it was Al-Hilal, but for much of the saga, it was more accurate to call it a Saudi deal because there's always a possibility that the club changes at the last minute partly because of where is tactical to put the player and player buy-in is important as well. So Al-Itihad, for example, have got Benzema and Kante and we'll never know the reality as to whether they'd be wearing different colours if Al-Itihad hadn't won the championship. But they did. Al Nasser missed out. And as a consequence, Al-Itihad qualify for the Club World Cup in 2023, which takes place in Jeddah. That was confirmed today. So, of course, there's a priority to make sure that Al-Itihad is suddenly well-stocked with stars because they're going to be representing Saudi Arabia this year in the Club World Cup. So the dealmakers come in, and I think it's probably fair to say, James, you know more than me on this front, it's kind of a delegation. And they travel around Europe in particular, and they take the meetings, they work out the terms, they place the offer, and then the club president gets shipped in 
often for what might be termed final negotiations, but effectively it's a handshake and a photo opportunity because the deal is effectively done. And the clubs are in the dark for parts of the process. And that's not to say they can't sign other players, smaller players, or just do their own deals. But specifically, James, for these deals, it feels like a top-level senior delegation that's the same people for every single deal. And then for optics, the clubs come in late, pretty much for that handshake and photo opportunity. Yes, although, I mean, they certainly can come in earlier when the the club perhaps has been assigned early in the process. So an example of that would be um, the Neymar story that we broke on on CBS. I think it's it, if Neymar decides to go to Saudi Arabia and look, there is not quite an offer, but an expression of interest on the table for Neymar saying, if you want to come to the Saudi Pro League, the Saudi Pro League will, will welcome you. And, and this is roughly what you could look to earn. You know, Al-Hilal have been more involved in that than Al Nasser were in, in Ronaldo and Al Ittihad were in Benzema. But in part, that's just because he's going to Al Hilal. That, that, that's the one that's been, that's the one that's been decided and been assigned. And, and then they want to make the case for why Neymar would enjoy life in Riyadh, why this is a great team to come and play for. I mean, you know, I'm sure Neymar has dreamed of swapping Kylian Mbappe for <laughs> Odio Magalo. Who wouldn't? Um, but but as Ben as Ben says, it is much it is akin to the British government deciding where Erling Haaland should land. And just to add one more quick thing, which makes the whole dynamic even more intriguing. There's a lot of football experts that have worked in the game, so these are not just Saudi officials. There's intermediaries and agents, and my understanding is that the PIF side or the Saudi deal maker side have actually got their own agents that are league specific, which makes it very atypical because that agent is representing the prospective buyer and is not afraid because they represent multiple clubs to go direct to a prospective seller, which we've seen with Chelsea and say, this is what we want. Like we're going into a supermarket. We'll walk down your outgoings aisle and then we'll allocate four or five to as many different clubs or places as we can. And this means that the player agent who would normally be facilitating learns about the deal a lot later, often when it's quite advanced, because we're getting talks between the PIF appointed agent and the club. Then it goes to the player side. And I'm speaking to numerous player agents that are sort of quite baffled because they don't understand whether they're being cut out of the process or why they're learning about a deal that's quite advanced for their client quite late in the process. So Are we meant to feel I, sorry at this stage? But, <laughs> <laughs> now, ben, you, 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 say, you say something really interesting there because uh, for, for Todd Bowley and Chelsea, this Saudi Pro League's come at exactly the right time, hasn't it? Because they are a currently a supermarket aisle and they do need to shed a load of their players. Um, how, how legitimate is... I, I don't want to say they're illegitimate. I, I want to say, you know, how should we be feeling about some of the deals that Chelsea could be tying up with Saudi now, saying, right, yeah, I'll give you five players. I'm desperate to get them off my books because um, we've spent too much money in the recent uh, recent past the first thing says we should always have scrutiny over what saudi arabia are doing at this point but whether or not there is a 
Chelsea-specific thing going on remains to be seen because every single player that's moving is having their wages tripled, quadrupled or more, plus other earning opportunities. So what's clear is that Chelsea have been in the right place at the right time. They've hit the outgoings jackpot. But Gary Neville has obviously added comments to suggest that some investigation is needed between PIF and Chelsea's majority owner, Clear Lake Capital, because it is true that PIF have historically invested in Clear Lake Capital, although there's denials that any money was put towards the Chelsea takeover. Then there's a secondary company called Kane International, which is also owned by Todd Bowley, and they've done business with PIF regarding a hotel chain in Amman. So there's links, there's a healthy relationship, and Todd Bowley was recently out in Saudi Arabia. And of course, part of that was to talk about players. So Chelsea need outgoings. These outgoings happen really quickly. Obviously, that leads to questions. And I think that even though it is fair to ask them, there's not much evidence I've seen that suggests that Chelsea have benefited any more than, say, Wolves with 55 million euros for Ruben Neves. They've benefited in a practical sense because they've got the players they want out quickly off the books. And that includes their wages, most importantly. And maybe if Saudi Arabia hadn't come in for Koulibaly, he'd have been stuck at the football club and Chelsea would have had to deal with those high wages and he wouldn't have got any game time. But I think Saudi Arabia have been consistently crazy with their approach. So when you look at the Chelsea deals, the fees for Mendy, Koulibaly and Ziyech total under 55 million euros collectively, whereas one fee for Neves is 55 million euros. So I don't see the fees as inflated. And then as regards the wages, it doesn't appear that anybody's forcing these Chelsea outgoings to go. They want to go because they're handsomely rewarded at a consistent level and at an overpaid level, you might argue, with every single other Saudi Arabian target that has ended up moving. So it feels pretty consistent within the wider Saudi strategy. So I'm all for questioning what's really going on, especially when we consider that in the context of this big money, you only have to go on the FIFPro website to realize there are historical cases of unpaid wages against previous Saudi Arabian signings. And that's the sports washing angle. We mustn't forget what's past just because we're excited about the present. But we also mustn't just bash Chelsea and presume that they've got special deals or treatment because the transfer fees don't necessarily suggest that. And also Chelsea can't put this money on the financial year and that's what would help them. So the fee that they're going to get for Kovacic and Havertz and maybe Mason Mount, if done before the 30th, can be classified on the books for this financial year if completed before the 30th of June. But the Saudi Arabian deals can't because it's not a domestic transfer and the window doesn't open until the 1st of July. So there's no immediate benefit on this year's books either. And I don't know what you think, James, because that's simply my opinion. Other people may disagree. But when I look at all of Chelsea's fees, the Havertz one feels like the best bit of business. And if Havertz had gone to Al Hilal instead of Arsenal, my opinion is everybody would be going absolutely nuts, saying, how dare Chelsea get upwards of £65 million for Kai Havertz, who flopped last season. It must be Clear Lake and PIF collusion. But because it's Arsenal, everyone just put it down to good business. Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly agree that 
I don't understand how Arsenal have not exploited that situation to uh, to the to the maximum and and really put Chelsea on pressure over the price. But you are right, and I think there is an argument that after a, a pretty chaotic first year, what Chelsea and Todd Bowley have done here is actually exactly what you would want and expect from your owner, your senior figures in the club. You know, there is a there is a relationship there. I think we have to contextualize this. Uh, PIF is is in in the hundreds of billions uh, and yes it has a small stake in clear lake and yes it has a small stake in kane it has a small stake in so many companies um and that and you know chelsea frankly is a small part of clear lake as well we're talking about a small part of a small part of saudi arabia's broad strategic aims it is not in saudi arabia's geopolitical interest to tidy up Chelsea's wage book, not least because they also own Newcastle. You know, if they were going to do this for anyone, surely it would be the football club they own. But, you know, what Todd Bowley's done here is exploited a relationship he has, um, got good deals for players that, that have a bit of star power that will add to the Saudi Pro League, even if they have a pretty minimal impact on, a pretty minimal positive impact on Chelsea Football Club. You know, the Manchester United's and Liverpool's and, and you know, the Gary Neville's of the the world should maybe be asking why hasn't a Manchester United delegation flown into Saudi Arabia to ask them if anyone would be interested in their Fred's and Harry Maguire's because that is what Todd Bowley did and it it worked a treat Uh, any any you know if there's a market there any club would would want to do that well no would have thought um I mean Ben you go back to saying that you know unpaid wages uh previously and with some Saudi clubs I don't think that's unusual of the Middle East and and we having lived out there know of a number of cases where players have not been played by uh, their employer i.e. a Middle Eastern football club Um, but moving on look PIF as we know own these four clubs but let's not forget because it was a big fanfare at the time and it seemed to go on for ages this takeover they own Newcastle as well What's the implication for Newcastle, Ben? Does it mean they're being forgotten, left out, or are they still a key part of the PIF project? A key part. And what's going to be interesting is whether PIF can segment between Newcastle strategy and Saudi strategy. And they should be able to because PIF, as James rightly says, are huge. So it's not like it's just six or seven people of which Yasser Al-Rumiyam would be the most known PIF representative that's directly involved in sport. Of course, let's not forget Mohammed bin Salman is effectively running PIF and everything PIF does is accountable to him. But Newcastle proved legal separation. Their takeover got cleared and Yasser Al-Rumiyam is their chairman. Yasser Al-Rumiyam is one of the key figures that has driven Live Golf and he will be very much across this strategy as well. So that overlap puts PIF in quite a difficult position because what Saudi Arabia are doing is purposefully overpaying because they see wider value in signing these players. Then Newcastle going to the market and everyone knows PIF have got money. And how do Newcastle protect themselves to make sure that they are not held to the same standards of fees and wages. And Newcastle have done quite well so far to be disciplined in their transfer business. And that's largely because PIF have taken a step back and they're letting Dan Ashworth with Eddie Howe run the show and almost paint a picture in the industry that when you deal with Newcastle, it's not PIF. And when you deal with Saudi, it's led by PIF. So Newcastle aren't going to be overspending and Newcastle are not going to tie themselves at this point 
to the Saudi Pro League, other than going over there and playing friendlies as they've done before. There's rumours that Ruben Neves is going to be loaned to Newcastle. It's nonsense. Why would Saudi Arabia pay that much money and wages to sign a player to promote the Saudi League, only to loan him immediately back to Newcastle United, who have just bought a number eight and or defensive midfielder in Tenali? Nothing makes sense about that, but of course it will always prompt headlines. We heard that Cristiano Ronaldo would be moving from Al Nasser to Newcastle due to a so-called Newcastle Champions League clause. And again, there's no truth to that. There is a Champions League exit clause for Ronaldo, but Newcastle or any other club would have to want to sign the player at his age. And I think that that is highly unlikely now. So PIF are looking for Newcastle to consolidate themselves in the top four and ultimately challenge for Champions Leagues and compete with Manchester City and the other big six to make it a big seven and try and win the Premier League. And that's very much a Premier League-focused strategy. So I expect Newcastle to be looking at players like Soboslai, Madison, even though Tottenham have probably edged ahead of Newcastle. They need a left-back because Dan Byrne is not necessarily the long-term starting left-back. And that's not going to be done with the same ferocity the same financial clout or the same swiftness. Newcastle are about consolidation and caution and Saudi are about making a splash. Look, and and of course, Saudi haven't got all the players that they wanted. The biggest one they missed out on was Lionel Messi, who turned down the desert uh, for Florida and David Beckham's into Miami. James, how significant do you think that is that Messi went to the US and not Saudi? It was a hugely embarrassing moment for Saudi Arabia, not least because I, I mean, I you know, I never put this in print because you, you are well aware of the, the risks that, that you take writing it. But a few hours before the Inter Miami news was, uh, was, was broken by Guillaume Balague, um, you know, Saudi sources were telling me he's coming to Al Hilal and they'd been telling me that for a long time and you, you couch it. But they had gone right the way down to booking two private jets ready to fly uh, Lionel Messi from Paris and Georges Messi from from Barcelona. They thought this they were in the end game, and obviously, to an extent, one of Georges Messi's great qualities was he made everyone feel that they were they, they were there until the last minute when he pulled off the the Inter Miami coup. It, it it didn't change anything, but I I think there was a a real sense of of frustration and anger, not least because they paid Messi an awful lot of money to be a tourism ambassador for Saudi Arabia. And and the briefs and the indications were that Messi couldn't imagine his young family growing up in Saudi Arabia. Not a great look if you're telling everyone to come and visit Saudi Arabia. I think that was a a moment of real anger. And we've kind of yet to see how that will play out. Will will they continue to use him as as an ambassador going into 2030, 2034, wherever they might end up bidding for, and let's be honest, getting the World Cup? Yeah, I, I got this sense in the days after that the general response was, okay, if he wants to say no, we'll go and get 10 players. We'll recreate Messi in the aggregate by buying as many big names as we can get. Yeah, But even that felt a little bit like, you know, when you're feeling a bit down uh, and you maybe go out shopping or you go to the pub and spend or drink your feelings or whatever it is, however you choose to deal with disappointment. Um there was a little bit of a sense that the Saudi Pro League reacted like that and suddenly the offers were flying out the door. Um, they had plans. They, they knew that it wasn't guaranteed, but I think 
losing out to, to Inter Miami in particular was kind of a reminder to them of the, this geopolitical game that they were playing. There was a sense that if Barcelona had got him, that's okay. That's a romantic move back. They can understand. And the offer would still have been on the table. I do suspect, this isn't hard reporting, but I suspect that now the way that effectively America has beaten Saudi Arabia to the highest profile athlete in the world means that Messi's not going to get another chance. Uh, and it was, we're talking a billion euros that was on offer for him. So uh, they'll say to him, you had, you had your chance, you had your money. Um, and we'll just go and moment. spend that on yeah. 10 other superstars that we can find. But there's no Messi's, no other Messi's, are there? No, no. Even a, even a Ronaldo's not a Messi. Um, but perhaps one of the, the closest people to Lionel Messi is the man who's written his only authorised biography, and that's the journalist you just mentioned, James, and that's Guillaume Balagate. Well, Ben caught up with Guillaume just before that deal was done and asked him what was the decision-making behind picking America over Saudi Arabia. The message that's been sent from Inter Miami to the Messi team, to Jorge Messi, is, look, it's won everything already. It shouldn't be about money because Inter Miami will not be able to match the money that comes from Saudi. Um, but come over here, lifestyle, you both know Miami. There will be a possibility of um, of reinforcing this uh, this team, this franchise, and, and the possibility of growing through it as well. And there is a World Cup, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he likes the idea of at some point going to the States. He's been learning English for a year and a half, I think, not so much lately, uh, and didn't learn a huge amount. But uh, but in any case, it's, um, in Miami, you can speak Spanish, no problem, uh, if you need to. Uh, and and yes, it's, it's something that's always been in the path. In his mind, it was news old boys going back there. But Argentina, as a nation, is in a place, and Rosario in particular, that uh, he sees every time he's there. And and it's a situation that uh, that becomes... For lifestyle reasons, first and foremost, the uh, sadly, unfortunately, they're least attractive. Have you got a sense from talking to people close to Messi as to one, how long he thinks he can continue playing for, and two, how much of his thought at the moment is about what's next, what will come after football? The Copa America is a, is a new attraction, is, is the magnet. So you'll have him around until 2024 at least. Then another year where things slow down and then, yes, Saudi or MLS uh, will make much more sense than right now uh, for another year, perhaps. And then he goes the year by year. He has been doing that for a while now, year by year. At the moment where he feels he cannot do it anymore, that's fine. But, you know, you actually do the Copa America. Imagine Argentina do really well. And... Uh, and then he goes to the MLS or Saudi and things slow down and goes through a season and he's a year away from another World Cup. So that is that is my dream, that he actually manages to to convince himself that uh, another World Cup could be in the horizon and break all kinds of records by doing that. But yeah, we, we, we don't know. And in terms of the uh, of the future, there was for a while the thinking in his family that he would he would coach kids maybe, uh, not not adults but might be involved in coaching now it's quite clear that he wants to stay in football because he knows a lot about the game in a kind of technical secretary director of football role uh, i just i've told him this uh, i don't think he realizes the amount of work that, that that's behind and the amount of traveling the amount of phone calls the amount of things you had to deal with so maybe he'll end up being an, the advisor of i don't know 
a president, a famous president in Barcelona, uh, not Gerard Piquet. Uh, somebody else that uh, come in, takes over, convince him, and others perhaps, the Puyols, the the, the, the Luis Enriquez, the Pep Guardiola, to be part of, uh, like Bayern Munich have done, part of a project that involves everyone, in which case he will be the one advising about players and what to get and the style and, and continuation of the idea that's made Barcelona so famous and so successful. So that's Guillaume's reading of the Messi situation. He'd not gone to Saudi. Do you think this Saudi venture can work, James? I certainly think it's more likely to have long-term standing as a as a major league than perhaps China, which is the one it's immediately being compared to. The difference here, I mean, it's it really comes down to the culture of Saudi Arabia. It is a football-mad nation. The Saudi Pro League was a big internal league with exciting players before Ronaldo came along. And when Ronaldo leaves, there will still be a huge interest in in football in Saudi Arabia. That for me is the sort of the key difference between China and, and Saudi Arabia. There is a football mad population here. And I think to an extent, this is the Saudi government giving its bread and circuses. You know, this young population wants Saudi Arabia to be a place to see superstars, whether it's superstar musicians who are starting to visit superstar boxers, golfers, sportsmen. I don't think there's an appetite to stop. This is all about repositioning Saudi Arabia rather than just, you know, trying to get your population into football, which is what the Chinese experiment was. I don't know if if in summers to come we will see quite the same level of spending. I think to an extent this is about bringing the Saudi Pro League up. And once you've got three, four superstars on each team, you maybe don't need to spend as much every year. But I don't think that the Saudi Pro League is, is going to, to be a flash in the pan. I think it will look to establish itself. From what I'm told, they say, why can't we be the second league behind the Premier League? You've got to find a way of of getting around those big European teams that have the history, that have the name. Is that the Club World Cup? I don't know. Is that trying to come up with a way of getting yourself involved in the Champions League? I don't really know. But I do know that you know these clubs, the, the PIF and the Saudi government, they don't lack in ambition and they've got a population that wants football content. So I certainly think it's got a quite good chance of having some real staying power. Well, the content sells ultimately, doesn't it? And if the content is good, then people will watch it, people will buy it. And look, I don't think they'll ever make their money back, but um, they might make some of it back. Well, that is your football debrief. Many thanks to you, James, for your insights into all this. This really is a, it's a whole new world for all of us. And our thanks to Fabrizio Romano for dropping in. Remember, he will be here every week giving us his spin on all the big transfer dealings around the world. You can find us on Fab's Substack, on YouTube, and all your usual podcast platforms. Ben, I think you should have the final word. You're going to be here every week with me. Um, it seems as if Mohammed bin Salman is, is getting his way. I think that Saudi Arabia are implementing their sports strategy and for some there'll be cynicism for others there'll be excitement and the leagues and clubs are waiting to see what the impact is and I think with the Chinese Super League it wasn't only a haphazard strategy it was also the fact that after they started bringing in some of these big names like Hulk or Oscar there was a friction between stars and star power versus homegrown quota 
And that's the big question for me in all of this. How does Saudi Arabia create a league the world wants to watch and fulfill the second aim, which is grow their league from a Saudi talent perspective? And can these big clubs still have star after star and room for Saudi talent? Because Saudi Arabia still, even though they were not able to progress in Qatar from the group, point towards the stunning victory over the world champions, Argentina. So how do they build on that in America in 2026? And how can the Saudi Pro League help? And then if they get a World Cup in 2030, how can they ensure that the Saudi Arabian national team ultimately competes? And at the same time, they also want to grow women's football and promote a healthy lifestyle and create jobs. So you have sports washing on one side, and we can't ignore that. It would be naive to. We have the sort of halfway house of tourism promotion and then we have the growth of the league men and women's from grassroots upwards and what intrigues me is the more stars you get we even find this in the premier league the less opportunity there may be for saudi players so then what the chinese super league did was insist upon homegrown talent quotas and saudi arabia eventually will have a decision to make because right now it works because the stars are adding to the talent, either Saudi Arabian talent or some from the Middle East and North Africa. There's quite a large Brazilian and Portuguese contingent as well in the Saudi Pro League. So we certainly shouldn't paint it as Saudi or MENA only. But obviously, there's room for Saudi players to play and grow. And what we're going to see over time is if the league excels, a lot of global excitement but what about the benefits specifically to Saudi Arabian footballers? And I think that was the thing that the Chinese Super League really struggled with. So I think that it will work in terms of ticking the goals of promoting sport globally that is in Saudi Arabia and ultimately commercialization around that. I think that it will get eyeballs, which helps both with the league, but also those wider things like tourism. But is it actually going to benefit Saudi Arabian footballers? Are they going to get better because they're playing with these stars? Or if it really works, are they going to get less game time? And is there going to be friction? And then I think the last thing I would just add is what's it going to be like for these players playing in Saudi Arabia? Because I think people don't always get that you train pretty late at night. You've got to cope with heat. You've got Ramadan to think about, and that changes every single year you've got during that period, therefore, certain players fasting. And it may well be that that is during the league season or during a preseason. You've got games that kick off at 10 or 11 at night. And by the time you've done your press from an away game, you might not be back till three in the morning. And a lot of these athletes are not used to that. And this is why I think, as James mentioned, they're targeting a certain type of player, such as the Muslim ones like Karim Benzema and Golo Kante who are going to be comfortable with that culture. So I think that's smart. I think that it is going to make waves and we now just wait and see how the league grows and whether it can surpass the lofty ambitions of the Chinese Super League and be a success or whether ultimately it's going to be a flash in the pan because they can't keep paying everyone massive money. They can't keep signing at this volume. Eventually, it's going to have to settle down. So I'm looking forward to talking about this one again as the league progresses ahead of the new season. Well, absolutely. And and how much forensic analysis there will be of the country itself. We saw how the press got on board um, when Qatar was hope, uh, hosting the World Cup. And will something be replicated? Everyone is discussing what Liv is doing. 
and now PIF, these these three letters that um, these mnemonics that, that go with these various organisations, we will be discussing, and they they have suddenly become uh, everyday words in our life. Well, uh, thank you all for listening. If you want your football talking points discussed, you'll find we do that every single week with the game's opinion makers. And we'll see you next week.